our society, we have a variety of invitations that we might receive across a given year. And many of them, we understand about them that there's a, a bit of a transactional nature to them. So say someone invites you to dinner. You're going to go to their home. You would likely write back and say, can we bring something? Can I bring something? Or perhaps when you come, you might bring some flowers or bring a gift to them for inviting you to dinner. Or you're invited to someone's birthday party. So right, you're going to go and, and celebrate them and give thanks for their life. Unless the invitation says, please don't bring a gift. The assumption is, bring a gift. And then at a wedding, you're invited to, to celebrate, to join together in the covenant of marriage. Again, the thought is we're going to go and celebrate. And then also we, we bring a gift out of love and care for the couple. An invitation is given. And then we give back to them as well. It's right and good to respond with a gift. Now, Occasionally, you might receive an invitation that, that seems to be completely one-sided. You're not to bring a gift, but only to receive. In our culture, I think we're a little bit skeptical of those. I don't know if these still happen, but a number of years ago, you would receive in the mail these invitations for an extravagant free weekend at a nice resort. And it was factual and real, a nice resort for free. But in the midst of the weekend, there was a moment when they would sort of lock you in a room and give you the hard sell for a timeshare. So if you could endure that, you got the rest of the long weekend, but it was by no means one-sided. They were trying to get something from you. And then, of course, our email boxes are, are filled with all sorts of invitations, right? Here, here's something for free to you or come to that. But I think most of us assume that if something is purely one-sided, it's too good to be true, perhaps. That it's a scam. That there's something else going on there. In the Bible today, we'll see one of the most extravagant invitations in the history of the world. And one of the most one-sided. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 20, which you'll find in the Bibles near you on page 816. Page 816. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you so you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, uh, we need to open it up the larger numbers of the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 11. The smaller numbers of the verse numbers will start in verse 20, and I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, we as a church would love to give you one. At the back of the room, there's a table, a sign that says free Bibles. Just grab one of those and take it with you as our gift to you this morning. So today we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared... 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Don't reject Christ, but come to him and find true rest. Don't reject Christ, but come to him and find true rest. In our passage, we'll look at it in two parts. First, we'll see warning, and then second, welcome. Warning, and then welcome. So first, we see a warning in verses 20 through 24. We saw last week in verses 16 through 19 that Jesus was speaking of the current generation. And now so many, most in the current generation were rejecting Jesus, his ministry, and his message. And then today in our passage, Jesus moves from the generation broadly to some specific cities. And notice in verse 20 that it isn't just random cities, but he says the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. So here Jesus zeroes in on some particular cities where he had focused his efforts. Much of his teaching and ministry and miracles had happened in these cities. And to these cities, Jesus says, Woe to you. This is both a pronouncement and a warning from Jesus. Now, Jesus takes no pleasure in this, but it's actually an act of grace that he sounds this warning. Now, any warning is heavy and intended to be serious, but it can also save your life. So starting in the summer, into the fall, in our, in our country, there, there are regularly hurricanes in the southern part of the U.S. And if they're bad enough, there will be a hurricane warning for a particular region, which says danger, potentially even death, so take cover or evacuate. So it is with tornadoes. There will be a tornado warning for a particular area. So if you're in the path of this, take cover. So warnings are intended to be sobering, but also they're intended to save, to announce danger, but also call us away from that to the way of safety. So Jesus names the village of Chorazin and then Bethsaida. Bethsaida was the home of some of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Peter, and Philip. And connected to that, he mentions these two cities of Tyre and Sidon. These were substantial cities on the Mediterranean coast, but these were non-Jews. They were Gentiles who lived in these cities. And these cities were often mentioned by Old Testament prophets, condemning them for their worship of other gods, their Baal worship. So Isaiah, Ezekiel, other prophets pronounced judgment on Tyre and Sidon. But notice here, Jesus says, if the mighty works that were done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. It'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for those cities than for Bethsaida. And then Jesus turns in verse 23 to Capernaum, 
which had been sort of a home base for Jesus in much of his ministry. People of Capernaum, by Jesus' words, seem to have thought very highly of themselves. Jesus says, instead, they will be brought down to Hades like Babylon. And he goes on to say that if the same works had been done in Sodom, that were done in Capernaum, that Sodom wouldn't have been destroyed. It would still exist. In the book of Genesis, we see the story of Sodom, of their rebellion against God and God's judgment on them. A notorious city that when we think of the worst of the worst, we think of the place Sodom. Now, both cities, Sodom and Capernaum, were were filled with sinners, people rejecting God, going their own way, rightfully under the judgment of God. But look at what Capernaum had. They had the very Savior regularly teaching them in her streets, and still they rejected him. The people of these cities would have been confident that on the coming day of judgment, they would certainly be better off than Sodom, Certainly better off than Tyre and Sidon, but Jesus says, don't be so fast to think that you will be. So in all three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Jesus had walked the streets in the flesh. He had taught like no one in history had taught before. He had done miracles, as we saw last week, giving sight to the blind, enabling the lame to walk, cleansing lepers, raising people from the dead, preaching the good news of the kingdom, announcing the king had come and that those who would trust in him would experience salvation. And yet most people were unwilling to repent of living apart from God. They were unwilling to trust in Jesus as the promised one of God. Now this warning from Jesus is important for us to heed as well. Prince Jesus makes clear that there is a future judgment day that's coming. Across the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus regularly speak of a very real judgment. And he makes clear that all people are sinners, thoroughly sinners, rebelling against God. We, we followed after our, our uh, parents, Adam and Eve. They, we followed in their sin as well. And God is just, perfectly just. And justice will be carried out in the world on that day. And our rightful punishment because of our rebellion would be this eternal punishment from God because of our rebellion against him. Friends, we all deserve the justice of God. And Jesus consistently warns of this judgment. But he has also provided a way out of judgment. So that through that way out, instead of receiving what we deserve, we can instead receive grace and mercy, life eternal. And we'll talk more about that way out in a few moments. But friends, we should note some dangers for us. And we should be clear, a day of judgment is coming. Jesus is clear on this. It's tempting to somehow just dodge these portions or to try to remove these portions, but Jesus is abundantly clear on this. We want to live in denial of it. The day is coming. And in light of this coming day of judgment, none of us are okay the way that we are. None of us are in a state to face judgment 
and come through based on the way that we've lived. If we just polled our city and we had a question, we said, just, just assume with us that there were a God and they were a judgment day. Do you think you would be okay in the face of the judgment day? And the vast majority of our city would say, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm a generally good person. And I certainly know some people worse than me. So I'm better than them. So on the curve, I think I'm going to be on the okay side. But friend, even at our very best, we are thoroughly sinful. We've rejected God, rebelled against God, facing judgment. And as we see in our text, we'll face accountability for how we have responded to Jesus. Jesus had walked their streets, healed, taught, loved, and the people were being held accountable for refusing Jesus. And the fact is, we all have incredible access to the scriptures, to Jesus, living in America today. The abundance of Bibles in our country, in so many different languages, that you could buy or you could get for free or an app where you could get it for free. There's preaching you can hear on the radio. There's preaching you can hear on the TV. Some that's good, much of it's bad. But still, our access to the gospel is abundant here in America. There's no danger by us gathering here today. No one's going to haul us into prison. If you confess Christ as Savior today, you will not be thrown in jail. For we'll be held accountable for what we do with Jesus. We should also be careful not to mislead ourselves and think, if I saw a real miracle, then I would believe. I think a lot of skeptics think that. Like if I saw a verifiable miracle, I don't believe there exists, but if I saw a verifiable miracle, then I would believe. But friend, the folks in these three cities saw many miracles, miracles they'd never seen before, Blind, given sight. Again and again, Jesus did that. People even raised from the dead, but they saw these miracles and still they didn't believe. Somehow we manage in our skepticism to see a legitimate miracle and they were able to somehow justify not believing. So we shouldn't kid ourselves and think, no, if I saw a miracle, then I would believe. Some of the people in the cities were likely just apathetic focused on other things. Many of them, I assume, probably thought they just had more time to consider this question. They had more of life to live. It's a tempting thought for us. To think I have many more years. So yes, the question of eternal things is really important. I just don't have time for that question today. But the vast majority of us, when we think about life, we assume we have many more decades to go. We, We know people die young. We just don't think it will be us that dies young. So we think we have more time. Friends, the good news is Jesus gives us a warning while there's still time. As long as you're alive, there is still time. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we would love for you to take seriously the warning from Jesus. So we see a warning, but then second, we also see a welcome. A welcome in verses 25 to 30, where Jesus turns to pray And he speaks to the Father aloud so that those who are hearing and so that we can be taught by what he says. So notice he expresses thanks to his Father, also refers to his Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. 
So here we see two of the three members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. And Jesus says the Father has withheld, he has kept hidden the significance of Jesus' miracles, the the truth of his teaching, and the significance of his kingdom from some. It has been held back, he says, from what he calls the wise and understanding. This would certainly include many of the religious teachers, the authorities who opposed Jesus, but also to all who thought they were wise enough that they didn't need God, who wouldn't acknowledge their need of Jesus, who believed that they were sufficient in themselves. But who Jesus truly is, is revealed, he says, to little children by the Father. And here the point is not their age or maturity, but it is these who understand their own need. Those who understand that they they are not self-sufficient. Those who are willing to receive from Jesus. Here Jesus helps us to see how a person comes to know God the Father. He tells us in verse 27, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So how do we know God the Father through the Son? How do we know what God the Father is like? Look at Jesus Christ the Son. Now sometimes people try to pit God the Father against Jesus the Son. Many thinking Jesus is loving and gracious, but the Father isn't. But friend, Jesus teaches us here and elsewhere that the Father and the Son are just alike in their character. So we see what Jesus is like in his love and his grace and his mercy. Friends, that's what the Father is like. Friends, the good news is God the Father may be known. Anyone the Son reveals him to can know the Father. But that then raises a very important question. Who then does the Son reveal him to? And it's here that Jesus extends this incredible invitation. Look down at Jesus' words, verse 28. Jesus says... Come to me. Come to me. Jesus invites. Jesus welcomes. But notice he invites not to a place, not even to heaven, but to a person. He says, come to me. My friends, this is the glory of Christianity. Not heaven, although that's a wonderful promise, but it is that we can know the God of the universe now and for eternity. We should see that this is no distant God. This is not a God saying, come to me by climbing your way up to me. This is not a a God saying, climb the ladder of your own devotion. He's not saying, climb the ladder of your own good life. That's not what he's saying. My friends, no, this, this one Jesus who extends the invitation, come, is the one who has already come. In the incarnation, Jesus, God the Son, has taken on flesh and has come to us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So the one who stood there and said, come to them, has already come to them. That's the glory and the beauty of Jesus in his pursuit of sinners. He came intentionally seeking, pursuing rebels like us. Our grandson, who's four months old, was here visiting last week. Apparently, his parents need to go back home and resume their normal lives. We wondered, why can't you just leave him here? He could live with us. You can live there. You could visit. They weren't really open to that arrangement. So, so they, they have flown back. They took him with them. 
Well, so apparently four-month-old can't fly back to see their grandparents. Airlines just don't do four-month-old. So, so in order to visit them, here's what I'm going to need to do. Get an airplane ticket, fly, rent a car, drive, go into the house, sit down on the floor in front of then four- or five-month-old, and then say to him, come to Grandpa. And I'll do that. And what can, at best he can do is perhaps open his arms to me. And I'll be saying, come to me. And that's legitimate. I'm saying, come to me. But the fact is, I've already come to him. I flew there. I drove there. I came in there. And then he's just invited that one little piece, come to me. Friend, how much more do you see what Jesus has done? God the Son taking on flesh, walking among us, and then saying to us, come to me. He's already come. And he invites us, come to me, look to me, trust in me. Jesus invites us, welcomes us to himself. But who is this invitation for? Look at verse 28 again. Come to me, all. It's a universal invitation held out to any and all. Friends, we want to be sure to see and hear that. This invitation is for all. It is for all of you here today. This invitation is for you. It's for the world. Now, there's a qualifier to this universal invitation. It says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. So the ones who can't come are only the strong, the wise, self-sufficient. But all who labor, who are weary, those who are worn down through toil, who are struggling, those who are heavy laden, overloaded, carrying a heavy load, they are the ones who can come. All those can come. And friends, when we look around the world, we look at ourselves, the world is filled with people. All of us labor and are heavy laden weighed down by guilt and shame from our own sin and rebellion, heavy laden by the burden of trying to find significance and meaning and rest in this life, many laboring under some world religion or some religion of their own making, thinking that, that through this climbing up, finally they'll find the answer, others with a worldview where they reject God and solely rely upon themselves. So this invitation is for all who understand their need, who say, that's me, I'm laboring and heavy laden, and are willing to admit their need by coming to Jesus Christ by faith. So this invitation is held out to all, to each and every one who's willing to understand their need of a Savior and respond to this glorious invitation. Author by the name of Dane Ortland has written a very helpful book on this topic. It's called Gentle and Lowly. In the book, Ortland says this You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. There's this impression I think many have that if there is a God, in order to come to God, I need to straighten myself out. I need to clean my life up. Before I go to church, I need to have things together. But here, it's actually just the opposite. What qualifies us to come to God is the fact that we have this burden that is overwhelming us. For what a glorious Savior Jesus is. 
And he comes to disobedient, self-reliant rebels like us, and he doesn't condemn us, but instead he says to us, come. He doesn't crush us and cast us away, but he invites us, come to me. And what does Jesus promise to those who will come to him? Jesus promises that he will give us rest. Now, this rest is deeper than physical rest. Physical rest is no doubt valuable and important. But as we've all experienced, at some point in life, it's possible to be thoroughly physically rested, but still exhausted within. Your body's not tired. As a person, your soul is overwhelmed. The rest that Jesus gives is the rest he describes later, verse 29, that he calls rest for your souls. This is rest, peace, satisfaction, replenishment at the deepest level of who we are. So Jesus comes into this world, a world filled with weary, burdened, overwhelmed people, and extends this invitation, come and find rest. We see a glimpse of this rest and restoration, uh, this new strength. And the Old Old Testament prophet Jeremiah 31-25 says this, For I, the Lord, will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. The Lord satisfies and replenishes. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 20 to 31. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable and he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So instead of weariness and fainting, this rest empowers renewed strength. And friends, so very importantly, this rest is a gift. We come to Christ He gives rest. It's not a transaction. We don't come and make a trade. We we bring nothing to him. He gives rest. Ortland says it this way in his book, no payment is required. Jesus says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift, not a transaction. For that's so much of the Christian life. Jesus gives, we receive. God, the gracious giver who gives and gives and gives to us. Jesus Jesus expands on what coming to him includes. Verse 29, he says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, if you're following along, you might think, wait, is this a, a bait and switch? Come to me, all who are heavy laden, but now he's going to give a yoke. Am I just leaving behind one burden for another? Yes, And no, because this one who invites us, Jesus, the Savior and King, who's come to us to rescue us, to invite us, he's bringing us to himself where this yoke that we do take on is the yoke of being his disciple, to follow him in this world with our lives. 
And notice what Jesus says of this, verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke and burden is that of being a follower, a disciple of Jesus. The rest that Jesus invites us into is fellowship with him. Not a life that looks like a never-ending day at the beach, where, where this afternoon perhaps you're going to go to the beach, be a good afternoon to just sit there, take it easy, listen to the waves crash, and do nothing. That would be a beautiful, restful day. But that's not the life that Jesus has called us to as a whole. So it's not a, a ceasing from living, but it is engaging in the life that Jesus calls us to. The rest that Jesus provides and promises is not ceasing from effort, but it is a deeper rest that is found as we take on this life and follow Jesus as a disciple in this world. So Jesus is inviting us, follow him, learn from him, serve him. So this is not the yoke that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, put on people with extra rules. It's also not a life without any constraints, but it is constraints that are for our good, that there's a wholesomeness to this that is for our health. We've seen Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew calling people to be his disciple. And we've seen already that following Jesus is not easy. It's not a life of comfort. It is at times costly and sometimes very costly. And it can be thoroughly exhausting at times to follow Jesus as we give ourselves away in love and service of others. But it is this sacrificial life that is the true rest that is known and experienced by those who follow Jesus. Because Jesus promises that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and this is because Christ, by the Holy Spirit, empowers all of his followers to carry this. So he calls us to carry it, and by the Spirit, he gives us the strength to do so. So we have true, powerful rest today, and the promise of eternal rest. But with that, the life, the costly, sacrificial life of following Jesus. Now, the reason we can have confidence in this is because of what Jesus is like. What is Jesus like? Is he worthy of our trust? And look what Jesus says about himself, verse 29. Jesus says of himself, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's quite a statement to be made. If I made the statement about myself, it would be arrogant and untrue. But if I just met you after the service, I'm Curtis. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. But Jesus is neither lying nor arrogant. But this is the truth of who he is. This is his very nature. Jesus, the Savior, the King, he, unlike anyone else, is gentle through and through and lowly at heart. And friends, that's why we want to trust him with our lives. He's gentle and humble. Humbled himself, taking on flesh to come to us. Humbled himself even at the point of death, death on a cross, where Christ came taking our sin, our guilt, the weight of our burden of self-reliant living. He died in our place on a cross, rose triumphant on the third day to provide this free gift of salvation to any and all who'd receive it by faith. And in this gift comes reconciliation with God, adoption as God's own child, free and full forgiveness, new life now and life eternal. Complete peace with God. Rest from our guilt and shame. 
rest from our own striving to make ourselves right with God. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give some of your summer Sunday morning to join us. And we hope you will consider Jesus the gentle and lowly Savior. And you might think to yourself, but, but I'm not under a yoke. This is saying I'm under a yoke, but I'm not under a yoke. I, I don't want to be under the yoke of Jesus. I want to be myself. I want to express who I am. Friends, the Bible would say that actually we all do live under a yoke. We just don't realize it because we've always been under that yoke. A yoke of self-reliance, a yoke of looking any number of places for life and meaning, a yoke of guilt and shame. I wonder if you feel within at times a deep exhaustion that's just never quite satisfied. For Jesus came to meet that, to refresh you, to satisfy Author Dana Ortland says it this way, who could resist this? It's like telling a drowning man he must put on the burden of a life preserver. Because that's what Jesus has done. We're drowning. Yes, there is something he's thrown to us, but it's the very preserver that saves us. And friend, in essence, sadly, these cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Jesus had preached the good news. He had extended this invitation, come to me. And so many of the people would not come. And if you're not a Christian, won't you come to Christ today? Look to him by faith today. And friends, for those who are Christians, do you see this new life that Jesus, our gentle and lowly Savior, invites us into? Friend, our Savior invites you into rest. We've traded these old burdens that used to crush us for this new one. And for all that Jesus calls you to, he will empower you by the Spirit for this. The yoke of Jesus is substantial, and it is costly and sometimes painful. And at the same time, it is easy and light. There's a rightness to it as the Spirit empowers you for this life. And so, friends, we who are Christians, we we come to Christ as he invites us. Come to me. We come to him once in salvation There's also a way that we keep coming to him, not to be saved again, but to return to our Savior and King. And friends, perhaps as you walk into this building each Sunday, a variety of words you might have in your mind, but but some of those you come up the stairs might be Jesus' words to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Some days it takes all that you have to to have the strength to to make your way here. You're stumbling up those stairs. You're thinking, it's going to be hot in there. It's going to be a long time in there. Friend, hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and Jesus will give you rest. This invitation also is the one that's for the world. So we as Christians, we interact with neighbors and friends, coworkers, strangers who we don't know. We hold out this invitation to them. We say to them, come to Jesus and find rest. Come to the Savior who is gentle and lowly. But friend, if you're a Christian, be, be careful of not slipping back under some old yokes that you used to live under. 
some old rules that you actually found your place by being a good rule keeper, but they were extra rules beyond Jesus. They were under the old yoke of living for the applause of others so that people would approve you. Friends, those other yokes are exhausting because they're not the yoke of Jesus. Friend, you are a recipient of grace. And so we now as Christians, we we have much work to be done in our world, in our city, but we labor not for the favor of God, but, but from the favor of God. We've experienced the favor and the grace of God. So from that grace, we now serve. Not trying to earn God's love, but because we already know God's love now, now we go and serve in that love. We have a glorious Savior in Jesus. Maybe this week you want to think more on this. We have this book that Ortland wrote called Gentle and Lowly on the book table. They're $5. If you have $5, if you'll read it, just take it for free. We'd love for you to take it. Just a helpful, I think, soul-refreshing book. As we conclude today, I simply want to read Jesus' words for us again. So hear the words of Jesus for you this morning. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden 